Father, we come to your word now believing that all of it was inspired, breathed out by you, by your spirit, for our good. And Lord, we believe that this word is profitable for us. Lord, I pray that you would use this word to teach us to think, to think carefully and well, to look beyond the surface of things, to leave judgment to you, to hope in what you've promised. And Lord, I believe that you will accomplish much else besides as we look together into your word. We pray that you'd be exalted and glorified, that the name of Jesus would be high in our hearts, that the Spirit would be active in our lives. We pray that you'd make us humble people, ready to repent, ready to celebrate your goodness. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I would invite you to open to Genesis chapter 47, and we'll be looking together at Genesis 47, beginning in verse 13, and continuing through the end of the chapter. And what I want to say at the outset is that I did not write this passage, and I am not responsible for what is here, okay? The Lord, by the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to include this passage in the scriptures, and I believe that it is my responsibility to preach it, and I believe that the Lord is going to do good things in our hearts through it. I say that because, you know, some passages of Scripture, they're like a highlight reel, and you can just sort of turn it on, and it's awesome, and it runs itself. And then there are other passages of Scripture that feel like those slow, dull moments between innings, but they're good for us. And then there are other passages of Scripture that you almost wish didn't read the way that they do. And what we have to do at all times is trust the Lord and keep looking at the scriptures. And what I have found in my experience of doing this is that the Bible is always good. The Bible is always surprisingly good. And there is always nourishment here for our souls. So having said all of that, we're going to look at this chapter in Genesis 47, which in some ways stands across from Genesis 39. In Genesis 39, we have the account of what Joseph suffered when his brothers sold him into slavery. And what happened to Joseph was unjust. It was wrong. His brothers stole him. They committed this, the, the sin of man-stealing, and then they sold him into slavery. This passage, Genesis 47, stands across from that, and in this passage... To put, it, to put it as starkly as some translations do, Joseph enslaves the whole land of Egypt. Now, as we continue, I think there will be reason to think that we could soften the description. But there are translations that put it just that starkly, that Joseph enslaves Egypt. But let's just, let's just be patient. Let's not automatically condemn Joseph. And the reason I'm pleading for patience here is because just this week, I read an article, uh, a, a writer was condemning John Piper because John Piper appreciates Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards held slaves 
Therefore, for this author, Jonathan Edwards is evil and John Piper is guilty for appreciating him. And now, you know, my purpose here is not to defend John Piper. My purpose here is not to go into American history. But I think if you look at things that way, you're going to draw certain conclusions about Joseph. And then you're going to draw conclusions about the Bible that would contain such a story about Joseph and that would say other things that, that you might not like when you just look at them at the surface level, the things that the Bible says about slavery. So what I'm, what I'm pleading with you to do with me here is to think carefully. And, and here's my number one point of application growing out of this ser sermon. Please, I plead with you, don't just look at the surface and then allow yourself to engage in a knee-jerk reaction to, to what this text implies. Let me just tell you what happened to me as I thought about this passage and I didn't look beyond the surface and I had this knee-jerk reaction. I was very uncomfortable. I was, frankly, dreading this passage. I had thoughts like, why is this in the Bible? <laughs> Can I just skip this? Can I go to some other? And, and what we have to do is look past the surface. So there's my, my first application that I'm pleading with you to adopt, to be patient, to don't, don't jump to conclusions, and allow yourself to be instructed by the text. Um, now, having said that, and knowing now that we are going to look at this passage in which all the Egyptians of Joseph's day become slaves, in a sense, um, to Joseph and Pharaoh, I also want to make a broader at, uh, observation about the big story of the whole Bible. And it simply goes like this. When, when God created everything very good in Genesis 1, there was no slavery in Genesis 1. And at the end of all things, in Revelation 21 and 22, I contend there's no slavery in Revelation 21 and 22. So I say that to say, it seems to me that slavery is a wicked human institution and that the things that the Bible says about slavery uh, reflect God putting parameters around an evil that human beings devised. Okay, So in other words, God didn't make the world for slavers. And God's intention was not for human beings, made in his image and likeness, to be enslaved by other human beings. Well, what about Joseph? What about Joseph? What about what happens here in Genesis 47? As we've been making our way through uh, this, this closing section of the book of Genesis, we have seen Joseph exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, and we saw Joseph... Uh, exercise wise, wise stewardship through the seven years of plenty so that he can now provide for the whole world during the seven years of famine. And we pick this up here in Genesis 47, and I want to begin reading in verse 13. And what we find here is, Moses writes, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So, for, for this seven-year period, the crops aren't growing, the fruit trees aren't bearing, probably the rains aren't falling, and so there is no The only food to be had is the food that Joseph has stored up during the seven years of plenty. That is the only food in the land. 
And we continue. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. That reference to the land languishing, I think, points to nothing growing. There is nothing growing on the land. And so verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now, to understand what's going on here, I want to think with you for just a moment about what currency is and what currency represents, what money is. You know, we, we have these bills, and, and this $20 bill, it represents value. It is not in itself valuable. It represents value. And so there are, there are things that are of value that I have that I can translate into a piece of currency, into a bill, and then because maybe J.O. doesn't want the thing of value that I have, let's say a baseball card, and he, doesn't, he has no use for my baseball card, but the baseball card has value, I translate the baseball card into a bill, and then I can buy something that J.O. has for that bill, and I can give him the value, and then he can give me the thing that, of, that is of value that I want from him. And it makes it so that I don't have to give him my baseball card and, and, and to get the thing of value. He doesn't want that baseball card. He can't use that baseball card, but he can use that piece of currency to get whatever he wants, okay? And in the situation that we're dealing with, the currency has been exhausted. The currency in this case is silver. And, and, and we see there that, it, verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the money. All of the currency has been gathered into the treasuries of Egypt. And now the people have no more currency in their hand with which they can get the thing of value that Joseph has, which is uh, the grain that has been stored up for the seven year, during the seven years of plenty. So we have an economic problem. The economic problem is the currency's run out. All the currency is now in the hands of Pharaoh. And we continue here, verse 15, When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, now look at what they say, Give us food. Joseph is a wise man, and he is going to meet the need that they have, but I don't think he's going to meet the demand that is made. The demand seems to be something like, put us on a welfare pro program. Give us food in exchange for nothing. And I think that Joseph is wiser than, than uh, doing, than, than to engage, he knows better than to engage in that kind of program. So uh, they, they come to him and they say, give us food. And then they continue, why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone. So there's a twofold problem. Number one, the land is not producing any food for them to eat. Number two, they have exhausted their currency. And then there's this stockpile of grain that has been stored up during the seven years of plenty. And they come to Joseph and they say, feed us, give us food. And Joseph, I think that Joseph, from his, I, here's, here's my view, from his study of scripture, well, it hasn't been written yet, but from his study of what would become scripture, 
I think Joseph probably was aware that God put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. And that is very significant. You could say at one level that God made man to work. God made man to work. There is a, a, a profound and important relationship in the scriptures between work and then you getting things to eat. So that Paul says, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Don't just feed him. And I think that when Paul articulates that, he's operating on the same impulse that Joseph is operating, he, operating upon here. The people have come and they've said, we have no money. Give us food. And I think Joseph's heart responds, if a man will not work, let him not eat. I can't just give you this food. There has to be a, an exchange of value that takes place here. And so, verse 16, Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food. And, and you can see what he's done. He said, okay, we've run out of currency, things of value. So what we're going to do is we are going to have an exchange. You are going to give something that is in your possession that is of value, and in exchange for that, I will provide food for you. Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone, your currency is gone. Verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. And it's as though they've, they've learned, they've recognized, we're not just going to be given this food for free, so we have to assess what do we have of value. And they recognize we have our lands, and then we have our bodies. And I think by our bodies they mean the work that we are physically capable of doing. That's what we have that we can offer. And they are in a desperate situation, as is reflected in verse 19, which really repeats the end of verse 15. where they, Just as they said at the end of verse 15, they now say in verse 19, why should we die before your eyes? What they're saying is, if you don't feed us with this grain that you have stockpiled, we will starve to death. That's, that's the situation that we're in. If you don't give us this grain that you have stockpiled, there is nothing else for us to eat. We will die. Why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land. And then they say, now, here's another thing that I want to I observe about this passage. So, you know, coming at this passage, we know Joseph's going to enslave all Egypt. But I think it, it, it alters our assessment of the situation that it's the people's idea. In other words, it's not Joseph saying, let's cook up a way to bring the whole population into slavery. No. Look at, look at what this verse here in verse 19 says. The people say to Joseph, buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. The initiative does not come from Joseph. The initiative comes from the people. I think that's significant. I think it alters our assessment of the fact 
that Joseph oversees a situation in which the whole population um, comes into service, into, into servanthood under Pharaoh. That they propose it, buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And then they go on to say, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So there's a connection between both the, the land and the people. So he's going to give them seed, and they are going to sow the land in the hopes that crops will arise, and then they're also going to be able to eat from the seed that he, he's, they're proposing he gives to them, so that he's providing both for the people and for the land. So as we think together here, um, what we're seeing here, if you think about this relationship, what we're seeing is they're saying, we're going to work for you. We're going to engage in, in the service of Pharaoh. And the next, the next sort of step in the logic is the currency that you are going to give us in exchange for our, our work is food. So that instead of cash, you know, that represents value because that's all been exhausted. Silver has all been exhausted. It's all in Pharaoh's treasuries now. Instead of cash, what they are going to receive in exchange for their labor is the food that they need to stay alive. And again, I think that this, this alters or it, it affects how we assess the situation. In a way, you could say that this, this was a, a re, perhaps regrettable but necessary economic arrangement. Now, if you, if you say, well, Pharaoh, Pharaoh and Joseph, they could have just given the food to the people apart from an exchange of value. I think the reason they don't ultimately do that is because Joseph knows at some level that that would actually be worse for the people. And I, there's this book this, this man named Peter Cove wrote, and I just want to read you a couple of quotations from this guy, Peter Cove. This book is entitled Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. And this is what he writes. He says, in the year that I joined the War on Poverty, 1965, the poverty rate was 17.3% in the United States. In 2013, it was 14.5%. So that's a three, point, three percentage point change, 17% down to 14%. And, we, and then he continues, and we had, spent in, we had spent over $22 trillion to obtain that 3% improvement. So you, you can hear what he's saying. The United States invested $22 trillion to lower the poverty rate, and it only went from 17% to 14%. And, and I think what Peter, well, what, Pete, what Peter Cove is arguing is it doesn't work. Then he goes on to, our, he, in another place in this book, he writes, my experience with long-term dependency has led me to propose a radical solution, that we abolish all cash welfare, as well as food and housing assistance, except for the elderly and the physically and mentally disabled in order to move from a dependency culture to one of full employment. He's advocating, all through the book he's advocating, that when you give people work to do, you actually give them dignity and a sense of empowerment and a, and, and a, a sense of, of, of greater self-worth and they feel better about themselves and then they begin to address their own problems. And I think that that is 
part of why Joseph decides we're not just going to give them the food. It's that, again, as Paul articulates it, if a man will not work, let him not eat. That is not what is best for people. And so you pursue other routes. And in this case, Joseph has chosen to go with the route of the people will work and they will be paid in the currency of food. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. So it begins with with all the land coming now under Pharaoh's control. And in exchange for the land, Joseph is giving the people food. And then uh, at the end of uh, verse 20, we read, the land became Pharaoh's. And then in verse 21, um, this, the ESV renders this, As for the people, he made servants of them. Other translations put this more, um, more starkly, more directly. They'll say, um, as for the people, he enslaved them. Uh, the, I think the NIV reads something like that. But notice after the word, them, if you're looking at an ESV, after the word them, there's a footnote in the text. And down in the lower margin, it, it, this is what it reads on footnote one. It says, Samaritan, and that, that's a reference to the Samaritan Pentateuch. Uh, Septuagint, that's a reference to the, the uh, Greek translation. And then it says Vulgate, and that's a reference to the Latin translation. And then it says Hebrew, and then it tells you what the Hebrew says. And, and, and the Hebrew says, he removed them to the cities. So... Uh, Bear with me here for just a moment while I get into the weeds on this one Hebrew word. This is a Hebrew word that if it ends in a, in a rah, an R sound, it means he removed them. If it ends in a duh, a D sound, it means he enslaved them. And what that footnote is telling you is that the Hebrew text has the R sound, the, the, the R at the end of the word, the resh. Those other texts, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and then uh, the Greek translation seemed to translate it as a a D, and then the Vulgate translated it as a D. Those texts translate it, he enslaved them, but but the Hebrew, I mean, look, there are are a number of people in this room studying Hebrew. I've got my Hebrew Bible in my bag. I will show you the R. It It is an R. It is not a D. Okay, so I, in my opinion, um, the ESV should go with the R, not the D, which would match the King James. Uh, I believe that I believe there there are a number of translations that go this way. I, uh, if I remember correctly, the the Tanakh translation, the JPS Torah translation. I had a nice list on my computer, and I didn't hit print to bring it with me. I had this list of translations. Which ones go one way? Which ones go the other? It's, it's, it's about four to three of the seven translations I looked at. It's pretty evenly divided. I think they should go with the R. Now, that, the R word there is this avar. It means um, it's the word that's used uh, for Passover. And, and, and I think that the reason that Moses would write something like he passed them over or he moved them to the cities, if you think about this situation, we have... We have a famine. We have a transfer of the wealth of Egypt from the people to the Pharaoh. We have 
Um, slavery being uh, on the table, operative. And then you have Joseph and you have the Pharaoh. And in this instance of that set of circumstances, Joseph is generously giving to the people food and he's a life-giving character. And, you know, as you read through this narrative, um, you, you don't read of any of the attendant evils of slavery. Attendant evils that are forbidden by the Ten Commandments. Murder, right? It's wrong to kill someone under your control. Um, sexual exploitation or adulterous behavior. It's wrong to take advantage of people in that way that are under your, your uh, authority. Uh, theft. You, there's no man-stealing going on right here. The people are willingly, like, making themselves indentured servants. They're accepting this arrangement. There's no false witness, like Potiphar's wife bearing false witness about Joseph when he was a slave, telling lies about him so that things get worse for him. And there's no physical abuse that we read about in this narrative as the people come under Joseph's authority. You will find all of those things in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. You find physical abuse. You find the murder of the slaves. You find harsh treatment of them. You find false witness about them. And, and we could go on. There, there are other bad things going on. And the difference is who's in power. In Exodus 1 and 2, the Pharaoh in power is a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. So they've forgotten about Joseph. And now it's not the Egyptians who are enslaved. It's the Hebrews who are enslaved. So I, I, and, and then it's going to be the Passover that's going to liberate them. So I think Moses uses this word here that the ESV footnotes renders, he removed them to the cities to make us think about the Passover and to cause us to compare and contrast the way that Joseph stewards this situation with the way that Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and 2, the later Pharaoh who did not know about Joseph, is going to respond to the situation. And that leads me to say this. So this is where uh, I'm going to bring in the gospel. The salvation that God brings about in the early chapters of Exodus is not that different from the salvation that Joseph brings about right here. You have people who are desperate. You have people who cannot deliver themselves. And then you have a figure like Joseph named Moses who rises up and he's going to be used of the Lord to bring about deliverance and provision for the people. And what, what we see in Joseph being used of the Lord to bring about deliverance and salvation and life for the people, we're going to see in Moses. And then all of that is ultimately going to come to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So look at what, look at what happens here in verse 21. I'm going to read this. As for the people, he removed them from, to the cities. And you'll remember that... Um, Earlier in the narrative, during the years of plenty, he had stored up the grain in the cities, right? And then it goes on from one end of Egypt to the other, verse, verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy. And then drop your eyes down to verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. You have saved our lives. So the people first say to Joseph, the only thing of value that we have is our ability to work. After, after we sell the land to you for food. So we're going, to, we're going to put ourselves in your service. You're going to pay us with bread. And then when they, when they do that, they say to him, you've kept us alive. You've saved our lives. If it weren't for you, we would be dead. We would have starved. That's the situation that we're dealing with. 
And this is going to be fulfilled in a situation where we say to the Lord Jesus, if it weren't for you, we would be dead. You have saved our lives. And the New Testament says that when you, when you recognize your desperate plight before God, when you recognize that you're guilty before him, and then you place your hope and faith in Jesus, you go from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness. And you have a benevolent master, the Lord Jesus, whom you are delighted to serve. And these people of Egypt, they seem to be delighted to work for Joseph. As we, as we continue... Um, in verse 22, we read, Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh. And then the ESV renders this, and lived on the allowance. Literally, the text says, they ate their allowance. So, so the, evidently, the priests are being fed by Pharaoh, and so that makes it where they don't need to sell their land, and they don't need to um, sell their ability to work. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Verse 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Now, now, you look at this and you think about what Joseph is saying here to the people in, in verses 23 and 24. Look at this. He says, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. So think about this arrangement. The arrangement is, I'm going to provide you with seed and I'm going to tax you 20%. But 80% you get to keep. You get to keep 80% of the yield to feed your family and to re-sow your field. Are we taxed by our government? I suspect some people in this room are taxed up to 20% when you add up all the taxes. Does that make us slaves? I mean, look, I think this is a pretty good deal Joseph has come up with. This is a, this is a pretty liberal arrangement that he's come up with. I think he could, he could justifiably have been a lot more exacting. Like he could have said, it's going to be a 50% tax. 50% you get back to Pharaoh, and then you can keep 50% to sow your field and feed your family. He lets them keep 80% of what, of what is yielded. So, I, I, and, and that's all we're told about the arrangement. So, so them becoming servants of Pharaoh, it almost looks like a, like a contract. And, you know, we have, we have arrangements in our society today where we have people that we refer to as owners, like let's say of a baseball team, and then they have exclusive rights to the labor of those over whom they have authority. So that people like Jose Altuve can't go play for the Yankees. He's got to play for the Astros. And, and he's compensated very generously for that arrangement. So uh, I think that if we look past the surface here, we see that not every situation in which the term slavery or enslaved or something like that is used is the same kind of situation. And, and what we want to do is we want to look past the surface of these situations. We want to think about the terms. We want, to, we want to say with Paul in Romans 14, God is the judge. 
and to his own master a man stands or falls. And if we're willing to say that, and if God is a just judge, that we believe he is, then I think we can say, look, if the Lord needs to judge Joseph, the Lord will judge Joseph. And I think that you can then take that and you can apply that to other circumstances that you might be confronted with. God is a just judge. God's, a, God's going to be a just judge in our lives too. And God is going to judge just, justly with reference to how we have judged others. So what I'm, what I'm encouraging is for us to actually think about uh, real situations and not just think in abstractions and not just have knee-jerk reactions to things, but actually look into the situation. And this, after the, the 80-20 arrangement there in verse 24, this is where they said in verse 25, you have saved our lives. And then they say, may it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. It sounds like they're glad to be in this situation. They're, they're glad to have the opportunity to live and to, and to work and to keep 80% of what is produced. Verse 26, so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Okay, so that's the, that's the first section of this text, and, and my points of application are really simple. Uh, point number one, please look beyond the surface. Please don't just hear certain terms that might trigger you and jump to the worst possible conclusions. Or assume that every time those terms are used, you always have the worst possible set of circumstances. Please look beyond the surface into the actual circumstances. And, and then that's, that's one piece of application. The other piece, I just alluded to it. Listen to these words from Romans 14, verses 10 and following. Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, Romans 14, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And as we think about other people in other places, as we think about other people who lived at other times, I think we should bear those words in mind. Ultimately, what I'm, what I'm hoping you won't do is say, oh, Joseph uh, enslaved Egypt? Well, we're canceling Joseph. The Bible has stories like this. We're canceling the Bible. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Look beyond the surface. Allow God to be the judge. And, and think about the actual circumstances. Uh, in, the, in the rest of the text, what we see is God keeping his promises Look at, look at verse um, 27. Thus Israel, and here this is a reference to Jacob, Joseph's father. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And that language should sound familiar because this is Genesis 128, where having made them male and female, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And when God said those words to the man and woman in the garden, he wanted his image bearers to reproduce and fill the lands so that all the land would be under the authority of the image and likeness of God. 
so that God's glory would fill the world as the waters fill the seas. And, it, and so here it's happening. As Joseph saves Egypt and as Joseph wisely, I think, leads his family, the people are being fruitful and they're being multiplied. Verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And there's a kind of balancing here where the first 17 years of, of Joseph's life, he was with his father Jacob, and then he was sold into slavery. And now here, the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he's reunited with his beloved son, Joseph. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. If you lived 17 years with your son as the vice regent of Egypt, you would probably have experienced 17 years of fabulous architecture, 17 years of the finest food available in the, yes, it's a famine, but we're talking about Joseph and Pharaoh's house, 17 years of the finest food available in Egypt, 17 years of everything that goes along with being the father of the man who is at Pharaoh's right hand in Egypt. 17 years of pomp and circumstance, 17 years of social standing, luxury, influence. He's at the heart of the world superpower of the day. Verse 29, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise. The ESV renders this to deal kindly and truly with me. You could translate this, promise to do steadfast love and faithfulness with me. This is chesed and emet. Promise to deal kindly and truly. Promise to do steadfast love and faithfulness with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. You see what's happening for Jacob. Jacob is saying... This world is not my home. This luxury is not what I live for. All the material wealth of Egypt, all the influence of Egypt, all the power of Pharaoh's court, that's not what I live for. I'm about to die. And when I die, you take me back to Canaan. That's what Jacob is saying. Do not bury me in Egypt, verse 30, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. What we see here is that the glory of Egypt has not eclipsed for Jacob the hope of Canaan. God promised the land, the land of Canaan, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is saying, that's what I live for. What I live for is the realization of God's promises. And not even the wealth of Egypt distracted him from that. So a few weeks ago, Matt preached from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 12, where Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we live for. 
We don't live to make it in America. We don't live to be buried in some prestigious place in the United States of America. We live for the grace to be brought to us at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. And, and I'm inclined to think that for Jacob, as for Abraham, as for Isaac, the concern to be buried in the land, even though they're dead, reflects a belief that the promises of God go beyond death. The promises of God transcend death. So I would argue that the concern to be buried in the land of Canaan reflects resurrection hope. Hope that they will be that God is going to overcome death, which was the wage of sin. So this was not God's program was not to just kill everybody. God's program was for people to live and he's going to overcome the curse of sin and death. And I think that we see reflected here in Jacob's desire to be buried in the land, a desire to live for God. And I would propose to you that if you're going to live for God, you're going to have to look past the surface of things. You're you're going to have to become somebody with the mental capacity to resist being triggered by by those hot hot button words. You're going to have to look past the surface of things to see that what looks like a defeat the crucifixion of the Messiah, is actually the victory. It's the triumph. And even in your life, what looks like the scorn of the world is actually friendship with God. If, if you got that scorn of the world from being faithful to the Lord. So we got to look past the surface of things, and we've got to look at other people and be willing to say, God is their judge, and then we've got to live for the world to come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the example of Joseph, for his wise wise stewardship, for his godly example, for the way that he feared you. But Lord, most of all, we thank you for the way that he typifies the Lord Jesus. And we praise you for this connection that we see between Joseph and Jesus, where the people of Egypt come to Joseph and they offer offer themselves freely. They offer themselves. And Lord, we want to be those who come to Jesus and make ourselves free will offerings on the day of his power. We want to live for Christ. So we pray that you would stir up within us devotion to the Lord Jesus and clear-sighted understanding of the scriptures. Lord, we love you and we commit ourselves to your care. We pray that you would bless all our efforts. We pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives in more ways than we can begin to imagine. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.